If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one of the, in the pocket of the pew in front of you. Um, if you are just using your cell phone, uh, perhaps to focus on the word of the Lord, it, it might be better to use that physical book and copy in front of you. And if you are going to use that, you can find 1 Corinthians in the first chapter of that book on page 895 of that Bible. And as you might have guessed, today we are indeed starting something new. Um, I have read multiple times that multitasking is bad for you. And though there are certain people among you uh, right now, your brothers and sisters to your left and to your right, who are saying to themselves, yes, it's bad for everybody else, but I'm really good at it. And the answer is apparently they're not good at it. Multitasking is almost always the wrong way to go being efficient at something. It's almost always better to finish the thing that's before you and then move on to something else. There are very few people in this world to get anything out of multitasking. And you might say, well, that, that might be good advice, Pastor. Then why don't we finish the book of Matthew before we go to the book of 1 Corinthians? And the answer to that is I have a litany of reasons as to why this is good for you. But as I was thinking about those this week, I, I realize that really that's just not true. Uh, that probably does have benefit for you, but honestly, I'm doing this for me. Um, so you, you just get to come along for the ride. Uh, First Corinthians is an incredibly interesting book, and I, I want to go and study it, but also it helps me at times. Matthew has various things that he is trying to communicate to us. They are important. They are deep. They are wondrous. I have been blessed by my time in Matthew, and we're not finished with him, we are going to come back and, and look at the rest of that gospel in time. But it helps me to not be in one book for so long. I don't know if it's because I spend too much time watching 30-minute episodes. If I, like the rest of our culture, have, have diminished my capacity to stay with something for so long, perhaps that's part of it. But it helps me to kind of catch my breath, to think through other things, to have focus on other things, and certainly... By, by moving the 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, by, by sort of switching gears and going to another book, I think it helps refresh in me, and I, I hope that it does you. And, and this is quite a detour, by the way. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Matthew are nothing like one another. This is an incredibly difficult book for a number of reasons. One, the book and the epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians contains some of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. I feel like I say that almost every time we come to a new book, but, but there are very, very difficult passages in 1 Corinthians, and so um, that, that's one of the reasons why it's difficult, but it also deals with incredibly difficult topics, things that, that we are not always comfortable talking about, and, and certainly even the sin that is, is shown so fluently here in 1 Corinthians uh, of this New Testament church is convicting for us as we get to see ourselves in this book. And so I hope and pray, not that you find yourself full of sin, not that you find yourself walking in the ways of the Corinthians, but that if you do, you will hear the good word of the Lord and, and that we might be better formed as Christians as we go through it. And Paul originally made his way to Corinth uh, somewhere around A.D. 51, we've got pretty exact dates for this stuff, which is kind of interesting. It's been almost 2,000 years since he was there, but we have almost exact dates as to when he would have come and when he would have shown up, and even when this book would have been written. He would have probably been there somewhere in A.D. 51, and he would have stayed for about 18 months in the city of Corinth, teaching, 
preaching, leading people in the knowledge of the Lord, these, these pagan Gentile people who would have known almost nothing of what the God of the Jews, the, the Old Testament commandments, the, the precepts, the proclamations that were made before, they would have understood almost none of that. Their lives would have been completely distinct. And so Paul, because he's got a flourishing ministry here, stays there for 18 months. But eventually he is called away. He has to go to other places to spread the word of the Lord. At some point in time, somebody writes to him and lets him know of the difficulties that are going on in Corinth. We have hints at this letter. We don't have this letter. Whether it was from Chloe's people, whether it was from somebody else, somebody gets Paul a letter, and that letter is filled with the idea that there are immense problems going on at Corinth. And as a response to that, Paul promises in our letter that he is going to come and visit them. But before he comes, this is a warning shot. It's a shot across the bow, if you will. He, he's telling them to get their stuff together before he comes. And he does it in love. He does it in kindness. But he does it knowing that he will eventually return to Corinth and things will eventually get put straight. This letter, then, is about a struggling church a church that is struggling to adapt to the very faith that it has proclaimed, a church that is struggling to, to get rid of the sin that has so closely tightened its grip on them, or trying to be faithful to the Lord. So our task today is simple. We are going to go through the first nine verses. The whole sermon, um, I'm, I'll just prepare you for this because you're going to kind of wonder where I'm going with everything. The whole sermon is basically an introduction to the last 10 minutes where I'm gonna go through the first nine verses. So uh, the first, the points that you have there are basically for the entirety of the book. Uh, we will go through the entirety of the book, our, our famous like 30,000 foot level view of what's going on in the book. And then I'm gonna make my main point from the last nine verses, or the first nine verses at the very end as we kind of conclude everything. Um, what we wanna do is lay out the, the the function of the book, the form of the book, so that we'll have a better understanding of it as we walk through it together. So let's read these, these first nine verses, which we will come back to here in, in some time. The epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of our God. All right, as we begin to look at 1 Corinthians I want to basically just take you through the four main sections as I see it of this text and the four main problems that are infecting Corinth. These problems overlap, they intertwine, but this is, I think, the best way of handling these texts. So in chapters one through four, we're going to be dealing with the issue first 
of pride. The first problem that we come to is pride. Now, pride is going to have woven its way throughout this Corinthian congregation, and it's going to flourish and, and pop up in, in numerous different ways. The first one, and the most obvious one, is going to be this idea of divisions within the church, which Paul hits immediately there in verse 10 after the section that we read. There's divisions, there's factions, there's splintering in the church as the church in Corinth was still enamored with the world and the culture that it saw around them. That world and that culture, much like ours, was very, very intent on having pride of place. They wanted to be thought of and seen as, as great and magnificent in the eyes of the world and certainly in the eyes of one another. And this obviously led into factions. It's little different in the, the churches of Corinth than it would have been in high school, at least for me, possibly for you. You've got all these little cliques. You've got your group of friends. You've got other groups of friends. And each one is separated from the others. You've got jocks on one side and academics on another. And then you've got the, the gothic people on the other side. And each one thinks that they're better than the others because they're good at sports or they're good at school or they're, they're just better than other people. So they, they each think that they're, they're better, right? Like each one thinks that they've got a hand up and that's why they're in that group. They're in that group because that's the best group to be in. And the factions that you get here, whether they're saying I'm of the Cephas group, which is Peter, or I'm of Paul, or those super, super serious people who are like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm just the red letter guy, I'm of Jesus, all of them are doing that because they want pride of place. They want to be seen as most important. Paul, in the first four chapters, is going to call absolutely all of that hogwash. He reminds them, the cross that I preached to you, when I came and I talked to you, when I came and I witnessed to you, I didn't use the kind of language of the world because I don't want you to be like the world. I didn't come to you preaching this, this sort of flourish rhetoric that, that brings people in and says, oh, wow, did you hear how he put that? That was so beautiful. That was so wondrous. It was so convincing. He says, no, no, I didn't do any of that. I preached something that was abject foolishness to the vast majority of people. I preached something that was appealing only to the lowest of the low, of whom you belong. You're not noble, you weren't wise, you weren't powerful, you were nothing. Paul isn't basically saying, dance with the one who brought you, man. You were saved by the cross. You're saved by this message of humility, of foolishness, and of weakness. Why do you now seem to think that the, the thing to do is to run after power, is to run after pride, is to run after these things that make you great. Don't do it. As a matter of fact, Paul, by the time he gets close to the end of this, is going to be incredibly hard upon them and asking them some very pointed rhetorical questions. They're striving to be prideful. They're striving to be seen as great and magnificent in the world. And so Paul asks them some questions. Don't go beyond what is written, he says in 4.6. You're not better than everybody else. Paul asks them, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And so that and, and would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. Paul's saying, 
What, what could you possibly want that Christ hasn't already given you? What, what could you possibly need that hasn't been offered to you already? Why are you striving for all this little stuff? Why are you striving for, for these factions? Why are you, you trying to build your kingdom this way? You might think that this group is the best group to belong to and that by belonging to it, you, you are making yourself into something magnificent. And Paul reminds them, man, you can either build with wood, hay, and stubble or you can build with precious stones. Wood, hay, and stubble goes up a lot faster. And frankly, because it goes up a lot faster, it seems more impressive. But in the day of fire, it, it comes to nothing. Don't seek pride. Pride sprouts in various and many ways. It doesn't always look like factions the way it does in 1 Corinthians, but pride is nevertheless a struggle of human beings throughout time. It is the, the, the struggle that many people in here have. We want to be thought of as great, and we want to be thought of as wondrous, and we want to be thought of as powerful, and we want to be thought of as, as better than other people. The cross reminds us that that is not the case. You're not one to Christ. You're not called to Christ. You're not brought in with a message of, of goodness. This is where the good people are found. This is where the great people are found. This is where the, the powerful, the, the righteous, this is where we are found. No, no, no. This is where poor, dejected sinners are found, as were some of you. The cross demands that we remain humble. And the second problem is a problem of passion. This is from chapters 5 through 10. There are higher and lower passions, and both of them can be good, and both of them can be bad. The higher passions are passions that probably aren't shared by everybody, that, that are, are distinct because they, they ask for something more than just basic things. They're pride of, or, or passions that, that strive for success in the world, or fame in the world, or notoriety in the world, or a legacy in the world. Those are, those are higher passions. Those aren't the kinds of passions that Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with very base passions. And by base, I don't mean bad. I just mean they're very basic to who we are. They're, they're kind of the, the, the most basic impulses that we have. Beginning in chapter 5 and moving through chapter 10, this basically comes out in two different passions for, for these pagan people first of which is sex, and the sexual union between a man and a woman. And it's quite clear that as Paul is working through here, these, these are some of the most explicit texts we have about how this is supposed to be handled in the Christian community because apparently they just didn't get all the memos. Paul spent 18 months there. There's no doubt he went over all this with them. We do need to be a little bit kind to the Corinthians. I don't know that we know exactly the kind of hurdles these things would have been for them. If you can go to the most liberated person sexually in America, who lives in the most liberated place in America, and you can talk to them, and they will admit they might do it with some chagrin, they might, they might do it with an immense amount of disapproval, but they will realize that there are people who walk in this world who think that that liberation isn't a good thing. And, and if you catch them right, or if they, they know something about history, they will also recognize that the liberation that they experience and the liberation that they love has really been offered to them in the past 15, 20 years, or at best 50 to 60 years. It's a new phenomenon. They will have a lasting memory of when things weren't like that. The Corinthians would have had none of that. 
the way in which the Gentiles pursued sex was the only way in which they ever thought of it. It wasn't special. It wasn't unique. It wasn't something that was, was private versus public. I mean, their religions, especially in Corinth, were centered on this, these sort of outward practices of it. They, they didn't know any better. And so to take them, no, no doubt Paul talked to them about it. There's no reason to think that Paul, in 18 months, didn't, didn't try and form and shape them and, and explain to them why it is we don't handle ourselves that way. But those ways of walking in the world do not disappear overnight. It's clear that they didn't quite know how to handle it. Some of them thought that sexual immorality was just no big deal. Maybe for themselves, maybe they would, would walk on the straight and narrow, but they weren't holding other people accountable to that. That's what chapter 5 is about. Paul says, no, if they're in your midst, you've got to hold them accountable to it. Paul's very clear that there is a way in which you are to walk in this world. But it's interesting how Paul handles this. Paul does not handle these passions by saying you are to flee from it. There are people in Corinth that seem to handle it that way. The beginning of chapter 7, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, and I think this is a good quote, this seems to be from that letter that was written to them, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So there, there were, was an aspect of Corinth that said, okay, that thing must be bad. We've got to go completely in the opposite direction and say that, that that passion is wrong. We can't have that passion in us anymore. We've got to conquer that passion and never engage in it. And Paul's going to come back and say, no. No, the, it's, the problem isn't the passion. The problem is the use of it, how, how you're handling it, what you're doing with it. In other words, what Paul is going to offer is a calibration for these passions. It's clear that the Corinthians don't quite have how marriage is meant to work, how sex is meant to work kind of wrapped up. They don't, they don't understand it well enough, and Paul is trying to calibrate them on that. The, the other passion that is mentioned through here, although there's a couple of minor ones, the other major one is food. Is food. Specifically, meat offered up in temples in chapter 8, Paul mentions this. Again, what you don't have Paul doing is saying, your passion is wrong and it ought to be crucified and dead. Right? There's some wonderful vegetable curries out there in the world, right? And you can go and get those, you know, just leave meat behind and don't worry about it being offered at the temples People don't offer cucumbers at a temple, so just go out and eat some vegetables, have a salad for once, right, and, and just enjoy life, and that way this won't be a problem. But Paul refuses to do that because it's not the problem of the passion. The, the desire for meat, the desire to have those things isn't the problem. The problem is how they walk forward in love. Paul is going to calibrate them, and he's going to calibrate them in a very specific way. So he's got these two major issues. You've got, you've got the issue of sexual relationships, and you've got food. And Paul is going to answer them by, by appealing to two distinct things to calibrate their passions. Those passions need to be subordinate to a greater passion. And all of us know what this is like. You're sitting on the couch. You're comfortable. You're cozy, you're reading a book, or you're watching TV, or you're just staring off into space, and you're happy, and then it hits you. You are really, really hungry for some fries, 
right? And you've got to make a choice. You've got competing passions now. You've got to either get up off of the couch and drive somewhere to get fries, or you stay cozy. Which one's going to win? If you have a child who is now a fully licensed driver, you can ask her, and she will go get them for you. I'm joking, you wouldn't do that. You would tell her, and she would go get them for you. <laughs> well, which passion's going to win? And what Paul does is in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, give us those greater passions, the passions that rule the lesser passions, the, the greater passion that rules the more basic passions. Paul, in chapter 9, <clears throat> excuse me, turns to talk about his rights. He has rights as an apostle, as somebody who preaches the gospel. He goes to great lengths to talk about what those rights look like. He has a right to a wife. He has a right to money. He has a right to these things. But he forgoes them. He doesn't want to engage in those things. He doesn't want the Corinthians to pay him. He doesn't want anyone to pay him. And he says, there's a specific reason why in 9.23. The reason why he forgoes all these rights, the reason why he is willing to bend himself to become as a Jew for the Jews so that he might win some Jews and as a Gentile to the Gentiles that he might win some Gentiles. The reason why he does that is in 9.23 he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in his blessings. I will become like a Gentile. I'll become like a Jew. I will, I will become so that I can bring in as many people as I can. Not for his own, yeah, he, he obviously, he's saying I'm going to get that back and more. There, there's part of that with Paul. The point of this is, though, that he is willing to forego those rights because there's a greater passion to see people brought into the kingdom, to see Jesus glorified. This is what he then turns to in chapter 10 as well. In 10, he doesn't use the example of his own life. He uses the example of the Israelites. Chapter 9 seems to be a laying aside of your rights. As he just got done saying in chapter 8, if meat is going to cause my brother to stumble, I'm just not going to eat meat anymore. Not because I don't like meat, not because I shouldn't take in meat, but, but because I have a love for my brother, I will, I will lessen my rights. I will depress my rights so that my brother can walk freely. Clearly talking then about the food. Chapter 10, he seems to be addressing the sexual immorality issues again. He reminds them of, of the things that the Israelites went through, that they went through something similar to what you did, but they refused to listen to the, the commandments of God. They refused to walk in his ways. They put Christ to the test. And they found out that he was more than capable of dealing with them. He says 23,000 fell in one day. Don't put him to the test. Don't put him in a position where, where you are going to deny his word and deny the things that he has called you to be, but walk faithfully. The end of chapter 10 sums all of it up very famously in 1031. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, covering all of it, the food passions, the passions for, for sexual intercourse, all of it, Food or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So, they've got these passions. Some of them are right, handled rightly, some of them are handled wrongly. And Paul says, you've, you've got to understand that there is an overriding passion. And, and that overriding passion helps to explain, helps to keep you on the straight and narrow, helps to keep you being obedient to God. Love God, glorify Him in all things. Friends, your passions are fine. 
but they're not all good, they're not all beneficial in the way that you might handle them. So seek to honor God with your passions. For some, that will indeed mean putting passions completely to the side. For others, it will mean considering that Jesus Christ is working in other people as well and that you don't want to interfere with that. For others, it means being disciplined to see the rightness of the ways of the Lord. But we should be people who have our passions changed by Jesus. The third issue that comes up is that of power. Is that of power from chapters 11 through 14. Power and authority go together, and it's quite clear that the Corinthians were confused about the use of authority, the use of of who was above who, who had rights and and could tell other people what to do, who could speak. And this, this bleeds out then into their public gatherings. I wonder, I, I would love to see what their public gatherings were like. They, they said that they just had people stepping up and giving a prophecy over here and speaking in tongues over there. It would have been a cacophony of voices of people just doing whatever they wanted to because I think the idea is they just want to be heard. They want to be thought of as, as being spiritually great and powerful and speaking for the Lord. They wanted to have that sort of demonstration of power and authority, which then bleeds over, of course, into spiritual gifts. Where the Corinthians were crazy about the most flamboyant of the gifts, whether it's gifts of miracles or gifts of the tongue, it doesn't matter. They, they just wanted to be seen as being people who exuberated the power of God so that they might be thought of as powerful, so that they might be thought of as people who had authority. So Paul addresses all these things. It even bleeds its way into the Lord's Supper. They... They wanted power to be authorities over people. They wanted power of gifts. But they were quite clear and quick to dismiss the power of the table. They thought that they could take it whenever they wanted. They weren't waiting for others to show up. Paul says, bro, if you want to get hungry, and you want to get drunk, you've got a home for that. Don't think that what you're doing is the Lord's table. Paul answers this not only by talking about how it is the Spirit that, that hands out these gifts, it is the Spirit that hands out the authority of the gifts. It is by the great work of God that these things come to you. And those, those gifts are meant to be used for the benefit of others. He tells them quite clearly that there is a, a gift that is important for you. As we already read in the beginning, Paul says, you've got all the gifts that you need. God gave them to you. You're pursuing these other gifts, but God has given you all that you need. In chapter 13, this famous chapter, Paul tells them exactly what they need. There's the end of, verse, the end of chapter 12, I will still show you a still more excellent way. The, the way that is more excellent is the way of love. It's to walk in love. It's to understand how to handle yourself in love before other people. To walk faithfully in love. As Paul says, love is patient and kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude. He cuts through power, he cuts through pride, he cuts even here through passions. It does not exist, insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul will finish that chapter and then turn directly back to gifts and say, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. He says, listen, you want gifts? That's great. 
There's no problem with wanting gifts, just like there's no problem with passions. You want gifts? Have all the gifts you want, but know how to use them in love. Get a handle on love first. Only then, only then will you rightly know how to wield any authority at all. It's not that there's not authority, but that authority is always wielded under the banner of love and the truth of love. Authority that is, is used and applied, authority that is wielded outside of that is no godly authority at all. It is the clanging of symbols. It is yelling for yelling's sake. It is commanding for commanding's sake. That is not the way of the Lord. It is clear that this is something that, that is important for us today. Just like the other things are important for us. These, we're not different than the Corinthians. We come from a different background, but the same problems are here. Problems of authority, problems of who submits to who and when they submit and how they submit and all that stuff, that's still something that goes around today. It's something that we still struggle with. Paul's answer is that as Christ has loved us, we love one another. Lastly, there is a problem of proclamation in chapter 15. There are some who, whether out of zeal or ignorance, we're proclaiming either that the resurrection has already happened or that it was never to happen. It's kind of hard to tell if they think that Jesus wasn't resurrected or if Jesus was resurrected, but the resurrection isn't for anybody else. It doesn't matter. Paul, Paul looks at this particular doctrinal thing and he says, I hope you all realize that this is disaster, right? He begins in chapter 15 with some really good news. He wants to remind them of the gospel I preached to you in which you stand, which you received, in which you are being saved. He says, like, this is not new news to you. I've proclaimed this to you. You bought into it. You've stood on it. All of that's well, but you can't leave it now. And that, that word is simple, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. He said, this is the most basic thing that we believe. Now, if you want to get rid of the resurrection, you need to know something. It isn't what I taught you. You didn't receive it from me, and you didn't receive that from any of the other apostles. We are the ones who know the Lord. We are the ones who have been visited by the Lord. We are the ones who speak for the Lord. If it comes from somewhere else, it has not come from the Lord. Second, Paul's going to say it makes no logical sense. Listen, if Christ didn't die and get resurrected, you're still in your sins. If Christ succumbed to death, and he is dead, then there is no hope for you. You are, you are more to be pitied than anyone else on earth because you're giving away all this stuff that you can pursue. Remember I talked to you about all those passions that you had? All those passions that, that you now need to, to understand in light of the cross, in light of the resurrection? If you're turning all those off and the resurrection didn't happen, that's a waste. Eat, drink, marry for tomorrow you will die. Go and party it up because if the resurrection didn't happen, you've got no hope anyway. Paul clearly doesn't believe that they don't have hope. Paul clearly believes that they will be raised in new bodies, bodies that are glorified and magnified by the work of the Lord. That same proclamation is the proclamation that we make today. That Jesus died for our sins, that he took our due penalty because you and I, not to mention the world, 
the world as well. Everyone who walks in this world, everyone who talks in this world, everyone who has an ability to make choices in this world sins before God. Whether because we don't walk in faith, because we, we completely ignore what he has said, or we hear what he says and we fight against it, we all walk in sin. We all have a penalty for that sin. We want others to be penalized when they do wrong. Do we think that we will escape? So we owe a debt to sin. Jesus, our great and kind Savior, took that debt upon himself and paid it in full, succumbing fully to death. He didn't succumb halfway. He didn't go to the cross and faint. He didn't drip a little bit of blood, squeeze it out like he was having a diabetes test and said, hey, that's pretty good. That's all I need. Praise be to the blood of Jesus. No, he fully succumbed to death. The wave of death overtook him. David came up to his neck, he says in Psalm 69. David repeatedly talked like the things that came upon him were life-ending, but they didn't actually end his life. The things that David feels like are going to happen actually happened to Jesus. He's dead. He's recognized as dead because he's buried. But then he's raised from the dead again. He is he lifted up into life because death had no power to hold him because God raised him up from the dead because God saw that there was no reason for death to hold him. He was innocent and he was perfect in his eyes. And therefore, not only is death overthrown as an enemy of the people of God, but our sins are set aside and there is now freedom for anyone who would come to that confession, who would believe it, who would receive it, who would stand by it, would be saved by it. That very profession, that very proclamation is the thing that we order our lives by. That is the very thing that Jesus spoke of in his time. We've, we've heard about it in the book of Matthew. It's the very thing that Jesus, through Paul, continued to proclaim to his church. It's the very thing that we have continued to proclaim today. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was resurrected according to the scriptures. We oftentimes use this phrase, New Testament church. We, we talk about it. I think I don't use it as much as other people do, but we use the phrase New Testament church. It means two very different things, depending on how it's used and when it's used. Often, the way I would use it, the way others like me would use it, is to describe a church that exists in theory, but not in practice. It's a church that abides by the things that are written in the New Testament. When Paul says, hey, don't do that, do this, the New Testament church that we're striving to be is the church that does this and not that. We're striving to be the New Testament church that lives up to the ideal that Paul, James, John, Peter, Jesus put forward as the ideal of a New Testament church, as the ideal of what a church ought to be like as it walks forward, what we strive to be. But let's be very clear. New Testament church also means churches of the New Testament. Those churches do not fulfill that grand ideal and perfection that Paul, James, Peter, John put forward. There are some good ones. As Josh 
leads us through the book of Philippians, you can see how full of admiration Paul is for the Philippians. He thinks the world of the Philippians. And there's some quibbles here, some minor problems with a couple of people over here. But for the most part, they're doing really well. You can go to the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation. The church has, has really got their stuff together. But it's not hard to look through the New Testament and to see that these churches are just an abject mess. No one that I know of is foolish enough to sign up for the church in Corinth. Paul has kind of bought his ticket here. He's the one who founded it, so he can't get out of it, right? Someone comes to me and says, listen, I, I, I want you to come be a pastor of this church. Strengths, it's got some gifts. It heard from the Apostle Paul. Negatives, <laughs> right? No one's signing up for that. There, there are only three kinds of people who are signing up for that. Someone who is so arrogant, he thinks that he can handle all that, and he's in for a life lesson, so praise be to the Lord, that man's going to be humbled real quick. Two, somebody who has nowhere else to go, and they're like, any port in a storm, so they're, they're going to go there. The third one is the guy who's like, I don't want to go there, but God seems to be leading me there, right? Like, no one's choosing this kind of church, but this is closer to the, the real way in which churches function in the world. Churches are a mess. They're filled with sin. Corinth was filled with sin. Factions, sexual immorality, a lack of discipline. They were suing one another. They would take the Lord's Supper and some would, would indulge themselves so much they'd be drunk before other people even had a chance to come home from work to gather with the church letting go of the most basic of doctrines. This was an abject, abject, just disgrace of a church. And yet Paul says, much like he does to the Philippians, to the Philippians he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And you would be tempted to think, well, the Philippians, man, They've got their stuff together. They're really close. They're there. They're following the instructions of the Lord. Paul seems very pleased with them. These opening verses of 1 Corinthians don't say exactly that, but they say exactly that. Paul is really sure that the Corinthians are going to be okay. He's really sure that they're going to be just fine. He puts an end to this, this factional talk. He says, you know, it, the Lord Jesus Christ is all people who confess him. He is their Lord, both your Lord and ours. Both their Lord and ours. Paul lumps himself in with the Corinthians. He is one of them. Paul, in verses 4 through 9, is so sure that God will do this. Listen, he, he, calls, he says that the church of Corinth was called, it was sanctified, it's unified with Paul and with other churches, it's blessed by grace and peace, it's enriched in speech and knowledge, it's sustained by the Lord. And he ends by saying, in verse 8, you will be guiltless in the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure, Paul says in other words, that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Paul believes, not based on them, 
but based on what he has seen the Lord Jesus do in them, that that work will come to completion. Not because they are powerful, not because they're mighty, not because they've got great gifts, not because of their pride, not because of their strength, but because of Jesus's. And this is our hope as well. If you're bothered by your own personal lack of growth, how you succumb to sin, whether it's just in your heart or whether people can see it out in the open, this is your hope in Jesus. He will bring it to completion. Bothered by your lack of love and your disdain for certain people or, or what you perceive as their lack of love to you or to others, this is your hope. The work that God began, he will bring it to completion. Are you worried that you look around and you see, not just in yourself, but in a lot of other people, people who are not striving for the Lord, people who are not doing what they ought to do, people who fail? You're upset. You think about the church as a whole. You, you say, people Lord, just aren't taking this stuff seriously. This is this meant to be our, our heartbeat. It's meant to be everything that we're about, and they just don't seem to care. And it's discouraging for you. Friend, don't be discouraged. and Don't be angry at them. Paul clearly isn't. He will bring it to completion. The things that face the church and the things that face our church and the things that face you and me are not new, they're not insurmountable, because Jesus is good, his grace is real, it is powerful, and it will do a mighty work. You hate to say it like this, but there is a confidence that can be built in looking at a church like Corinth and thinking for just a second, we're not that, right? Praise God, we don't have all those issues. We might have different issues, and we're probably misjudging how bad we actually are. But in all things, one of the reasons why the Lord has saved these letters for us is so that they can be an example just as the Israelites were an example. They have huge problems. Christ is really good. So, we have confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus to bring about all that needs to happen. Have that confidence in one another. Have that confidence in yourself, not because it relies upon you, but because it relies upon the goodness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we do not consider that we have already arrived, but as Paul says, we press to take hold of it, to take hold of of the goodness of Jesus Christ to take hold of these, these desires that he has for us because Jesus has taken a hold of us. We rest in his work in us. We press forward to be worthy of our calling in the gospel. May all of our efforts, all done in faith and by your spirit's work in us, be pleasing before you and to be used to show the glory of the God who has called us into his marvelous kingdom of light. May this be so for our good and for our glory. Uh, and for the glory of our Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.